there. This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love talking to creative people about how they do their thing. Today, I have two guests for the price of one, and we're putting this episode out earlier than we usually do because I want to help promote their movie. Uh, the movie is Studio One Forever. It's a documentary about the legendary West Hollywood disco, and I'm speaking with the documentarian, Mark Saltarelli, as well as Bruce Valanche, writer, performer, icon, who appears in the film and was around a lot back in the day at Studio One. Um, I love the movie. It brought back a lot of memories for me. And I think it's so important in terms of like what was happening at that time in the culture. And I'm so glad it exists. But before we get to the interview, I want to remind you there are two ways you can enjoy this podcast, Dennis Anyone. You can listen, as you always do, at any podcast app. Or I'd love it if you considered becoming a subscriber to DNR Studios. That's part of a... I'm part of a group of shows that are under the DNR banner, and for a monthly subscription fee, you get my show early, and you get all these other great shows. So you can learn about that at dnrstudios.com. Another way you can support the podcast is by leaving a tip in my virtual tip jar, which you can find at dennisanyone.net, and then just click on podcasts. I got a redesign recently. It's kind of snazzy. I'm into it. Check it out, dennisanyone.net. All right, that's enough for the plugs. Here now is the interview with Mark Saltarelli and Bruce Valanche from the film Studio. Studio One Forever. Joining me now via Zoom, it's filmmaker Mark Saltarelli and Bruce Valanche, performer, writer, icon. Uh, they are here to talk about the movie Studio One Forever. Uh, Mark, you're the filmmaker behind the movie. It's about the gay disco that is legendary in Los Angeles. When I moved here, it was the place to go. Um, Mark, can you tell people just a little bit about the film generally and uh, and what drew you to it? Sure. Uh, Studio One was the very first and biggest gay disco in all of America. It was started by Scott Forbes in 1974, and it lasted through the excitement of the 70s and into the AIDS crisis it closed around 1993. And it was attached to it was the Backlot Theater, which uh, became kind of the place to go. And all of the great stars from classic Hollywood, uh, Betty Davis, Jimmy Stewart, Cary Grant, you name it, they all went to this gay club for the very first time in, in the 70s. So uh, Cheetah Rivera, it was a thrill. I got to interview her. She's the reason that the Backlot took off because... Bob Fosse had a heart attack during the Chicago rehearsals and they had months off and she came here and Liza invited all of her friends and the rest is history in terms of the backlot becoming this sensation. So the backlot is the silver lining to Bob Fosse's heart attack. All right. Absolutely. Good to know. Bruce, what's your first memory of Studio One? What do you remember about your first times there? Uh, I I was, the first time actually I was with an act I was writing. I remember, I think it was Luz Torres. Uh, and I had done, a, uh, we had had a nightclub act that she did. This was Liz in her thin period before she became a heavy character actor. She was on uh, Phyllis with Cloris Lynchman. Of course. And so we did an, we, yeah, we did an act and, uh, uh, and we climbed those stairs to the back lot. And I had never been because I was not a club goer. I was not a disco baby. You know, I, I fit none of those boxes. And but I did go to cabarets a lot, and uh, so there I was. And I, uh, like everybody else, I mean, I was kind of gobsmacked because in the back was this nightclub with people like Cary Grant, you know, swanning their way through, 
And then in, in the front was a disco with, with a thousand uh, shirtless guys sweating up a storm. And in between, there was the, sort of the DMZ, which was the restroom section, which was where uh, everybody eventually met, you know, including women. They, if they could find the ladies' room, it, it was there. So uh, I was kind of stunned by the whole thing. I thought it was, it was a, a fantastic operation, which it was. And I kept coming back mostly to work. I mean, it was not the kind of thing that I, that, that, that I did uh, to play there. But uh, I certainly was with there a lot of times. I hung around after the shows and I watched everybody, you know, do everything. And I, I certainly uh, took my, my share of chemical additives, you know, so I had to be gently helped down the 500,000 iron steps. I know the steps through. are a recurring character. You know how they always say New York is a character in Sex and the City. The steps uh, are right. a character in your documentary. Um, one thing that you had to be young because you had to be able to make it up and down. <laughs> yeah. Um, although Frances Bay played there and you know, she, she, we, we got her up and down. Who did? Play. I'm sorry. I think I cut you off. Frances Bay, fabulous, fabulous pianist, singer, the greatest. I love it. Anyway, she's in the movie. There was a movie there, a shot there called, there had been a picture called Dawn Portrait of a Teenage Runaway. Right. This was a sequel, Alexander, Another Side of Dawn. Right. And Lee is as a guy who's gay, was he not gay? Anyway, Fran was playing there at the time and they shot a whole bunch of stuff and a lot of her act is in the TV movie, which certainly shocked them in Keokuk, Iowa when they showed it on NBC. But um, that was part Francis, of our Francis would uh, did a lot of, of white powder and she would pass out yeah. and then all of a sudden jump back up. Uh, yeah, yeah, it would. Yeah, and and Madam did that. I mean, when, when I wrote for Wayland and Madam, and we incorporated that into Madam's act, where all of a sudden, when Wayland felt it wasn't going well, she would just kind of do a face plant on the piano. It's and so nice to have that. Everything. It's so nice to have that in your back pocket as a, as a bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. We talked about the stairs. One thing that struck me as I was watching the movie, there are all these shots of the actual structure, and we're, we're trying to save it. It is not a beautiful structure. It's oddly shaped. I don't know what's underneath it. If we're going all the way upstairs, what's underneath? Like, I don't understand the actual structure. It was a, it was a factory. It was a mill, wasn't it? So it was, uh, it it was, was a camera factory. Camera factories. The first motion picture cameras. Uh, but, but eventually, every... Uh, Everything that, that faced the street was used. The, the ground floor became several different restaurants, Rose Tattoo, Checkers. There was another Rose Tattoo restaurant on a weird middle level that uh, you had to get to through yet another staircase. I mean, there, there was a gym. There was a gym and there was like a, a hardware store on the, other, on the north side of it. There was, I think, Coots Hardware, which the name always made me laugh, uh, which is now you know, a fixture on Santa Monica Boulevard. And, and there were just many stairs coming and going. And yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was ugly. It looked like we're, you know, like the Black Mariah where, where Edison made the first movies. That's what it reminded me of when I first looked at it. And yet it has all of this amazing history. Um, I loved the part of the movie where we meet Natalie Garcia, um, uh, Mark, can you talk a little about her and where did that happen in the course of you making the movie? Yeah, um, I guess that happened about two years in. I've been working on this for over three years. Uh, and 
It was just a, an amazing connection. I, I do a lot of uh, videos for Project Angel Food. Um, I, they're, they're telethons and their events. And uh, somehow through this connection, uh, a guy who was at a party, when I told him I was making this movie about Studio One, said, oh, my God, I just met this woman, <laughs> a younger lesbian woman, who was telling me that she found all of these stills in a garage. And so he hooked me up with Natalie, and she wasn't quite sure what they were of. But Michael Koth, who is uh, in the film, uh, filled her in on, on what they were. They were indeed of Studio One, and they were essentially ready to be thrown out. And she's an animal rescuer by trade, and uh, she saved our little piece of uh, LGBT history. Uh, and I'm so grateful for her for doing that. She was fascinated. She loves gay men and that's why she was fascinated by it. We tried to find a photographer, but who took all that oh, stuff? Right. Yeah, we're still trying to figure that we're out. We're still trying to find out who did them and, and where they came from. Because it was in a house that she bought and she found them in the garage. Was that windfall of material, did it feel like, oh, the gods are with us on this? Did it mean something that it just happened in that way? Yeah, it was, it was uh, amazing the way those connections came together in that way. Uh, so it, if you believe in that kind of thing, then yes, I would definitely say. And, and I, I have my moments when I, when I believe. Uh, but certainly this project has, over and over, I mean, just Bruce's participation has been so incredible. He's been so generous with his time. I must have interviewed you 10 times. Um, and, and, you know, whenever we were like wondering where is our funding to finish the film, you know, of course, for a documentary, most of the money needs to come in at the end. All of a sudden, there it is, uh, from Gary Carno to Alan Eichler uh, to all of these wonderful people who who stepped up and supported the film and all of that individual small donations, you know, that we had over three years. Uh, and there's a lot of love for that era, for Studio One, you know, in so many people. And there was over a thousand men every night. So there are a lot of people out there who remember it. And hopefully we've preserved that era through the film, uh, whether the building is preserved or not. You have to watch the film for that. Um <clears throat> But you know, I, my feeling is it's it's so critical now, the way the world is, the forces that are trying to ban gay history and just make us not human anymore. You know, just, I think it's just the perfect time for this film to be out there so that people can hopefully understand and have some uh, empathy for what we went through. Particularly, not only people who lived through it, but the, young, the younger generation. It's really critical for them to to have some knowledge beyond the TikTok. Yeah. Um, talking about the slides, and I think when people start to see this movie, they're going to come to you with stories, and you're going to get more and more stories. Um, do you guys know my friend Glenn Gaylord? He's a writer and filmmaker. He saw an advanced screening of this, and there was one of those slides where he's like, I know that guy. I haven't seen him. It, it, it was like an old roommate or something of his, and it was it, it literally like, yeah, I think he had to pause the movie. Like, it was like seeing a ghost. And I actually think the, the gentleman is still alive. But I think people are going to respond to this movie and have their own stories. My memory was that's where I first country danced. Um, they started doing country dancing on Wednesday nights, early 90s. I think it went to still Studio One before it became all these other evolutions. And it was a big deal because that became my whole social circle. Um, but it started there. Um, Joan Rivers, um, who I had the pleasure of working with at Fashion Police, 
I knew that she was always a diehard advocate for the gay community, but until I saw your movie, I didn't know what a what a brave thing she did really early on. Can you talk about the the event that she did there? Yeah, it was actually the first AIDS benefit, you know, because nothing was happening. Uh, people were dying and they were the community was struck and we were looking around watching people drop and we said what can we do the government wouldn't step in and nobody nobody would step in basically so we decided that we would have to do it ourselves and the show business component said what we can do is we can have we can do a fundraiser we can raise money uh, and and to to start some of these uh, service charities that will take care of people who are sick and do research. And Joan was the first one to step in and say, I'll I'll host it or I'll do my act, I'll do whatever. And she was very brave. Part of it was she had a hairdresser named Jason who was a dear, adorable, and who was an early victim. And she was there for the whole thing, for the diagnosis, for... I mean, even before I think it was a, a, a virus, it had been assigned to a virus before that, when it was just some kind of gay pneumonia. So Joan was there from the beginning. And uh, the first one we did was a Studio One. And as Mel- Melissa tells the story in the movie, there was, there were, everybody was very scared because uh, it, 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 people were afraid to associate with it at all. And they said they went together as a family. Melissa and, and Edgar and Joan, when the, because they wanted to all be there together in case something happened. But so she was among the first. There was a small group of, of women who stepped up right away. Uh, Madonna, Bette Midler, Nell Carter, whose brother died of AIDS. Uh, they were the, they were the first ones to, to do any of these, uh, these events. And, uh, so, it's, it's quite something in the history, in, in the legacy of, of gay culture, that, that this existed at Studio One. And it gives you, it's kind of emblematic of what Studio One meant to the L.A. community at that point. And as I've, I've said before, gay bars, as I'm older than all of you, gay bars were generally things in an alley with a light bulb over it, so you knew where, where to go, and you had to be told, and there was a guide tell you, a Damron guide, where you looked to see where the bars yeah. were. And Studio One was a bunch of gay people lined up on Robertson Boulevard waiting to get in. This was unheard of because, you know, it said to the world, I'm I'm a gay person going to this club. So right away it has has a piece of history. Because there would be drive-by abuse, you know, faggot, uh, bottles being thrown. You know, it was was a great thing to, to stand in that line. Talk to me about Scott Forbes. He's the, I guess, the, the club owner, the club, the empresario. What was he like as a man? He, he comes across um, like ambitious, um, you know, like he, he was running the show. But I don't know if I would like him if I met him. What was he like? Yeah, he was hot. Which is not nothing. It's important. Think, think Mark Zuckerberg with uh, an Afro hairdo and a large penis. And that's... <laughs> That might, that might be the title of this episode. That might be the title of this episode. I mean, that that was he was extremely hot and uh, but there, but extremely cold. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was. Uh, uh, I, no, the word is not stoic, but he was. Well, Zuckerberg. When I, every time I look at Zuckerberg, I think it's kind of like Scott. I mean, I don't know that you know uh, there, there was any kind of Aspergers or anything going on, but he was. Uh, he was a, a guy. He he didn't have a lot of bend in him. Interesting. You know, he was. 
Yeah, but he was smart and ambitious and had to be talked into a lot of stuff and, and it didn't and found it hard, found it easy to deny things, you know, and he had a certain vision and the, the fact that everybody didn't subscribe to that vision uh, didn't phase him. Yeah. He just did what he was going to do. Is that clear enough? <laughs> yeah, no, it was, that, that, that kind of uh, sheds a little light for sure. Um, it was he a was, place. He was a doctor. He was an optometrist. Oh, interesting. Uh, Yes, my, which my father was, which explains my rebellion glasses. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, he yeah. was he was a scientist. I mean, he yeah. was actually he had gone through school and he had a, he he mastered a precise science and he had a practice. So this was his side hustle. Yeah, interesting. The the place was a haven for many, but I think there were a lot of people that didn't feel welcome there. And the film talks about that a bit. There were controversies around sexism and, and racism. Bruce, do you remember that time? Because other people I've talked to, I wasn't quite in L.A. yet, but they remember it. They remember it being in the yeah. media. Oh, yeah. It was in the media, and it was, there were protests, you know, and then we found a couple of the, the protest posters, I think, that are, that are in the movie. But, yeah, at the time, I mean, uh, it, it was very... You, it, you know, I worked a lot in the back lot, and it seems to me that that those policies did not affect people who were going to see the show. They affected the people who were going to be in the disco because he wanted the disco to be the sea of sweaty, white, gorgeous bodies. And, uh, you know, obviously, you were going to go see Cheetah Rivera. You didn't have to worry if you were going to wear open-toed shoes. Right. You just wouldn't be able to cross over into a disco world. Right. So, so I guess the long way of saying is, yeah, I didn't hear, but the only people I heard about it from were, people, were angry women who really wanted to go dance right. with straight guys and because they could not, they could dance and not be hit on. And I totally sympathize with them because I would dance and not be hit on. <laughs> I get it. So um, I with them in, but he would have none of it. Yeah, he was not having any of it. Mark, can you talk about that part of the story and what you observed when you were researching? Yeah, well, Scott's vision was to make a haven basically for white gay men people like him uh so people like him yeah uh so he, he you know he came up with a no open toed shoes policy basically to keep women out i i actually got that confirmed from carol taylor who was actually lived with scott and worked with him uh so it was it was interesting to confirm that that i mean there were reasons that somebody had cut their toes and but the real reason was to keep them out uh, and then, of course, people of color, uh, and that started this this protest in a boycott. Uh, it, it was it was a big deal. Um, but as you know, Studio One progressed into the '80s. He did change, but it was a big thing. I mean, uh, the guy who started uh, Circus Disco, which was basically a Latin focused disco, which did not discriminate anybody could go there. Uh, he started that because I didn't get this in the film, unfortunately, but he started because he was not allowed entrance to Studio One. Wow. He's like, we're going to open up our own place. Look at that. It's just like Hillcrest Country Club, which opened because the Jews could not get into Los Angeles Country Club. Right. My people. Right. And, and course, then everybody from the LA Country Club wanted to come to Hillcrest because the food was better. That's <laughs> another documentary. That's- <laughs> For sure. Um, there's one moment that just like, just made my heart stop almost is somebody showing a picture of like 105 people that were from the club, club goers, people that work there. And and the person says that two of the people in that photograph are alive Two. Yeah. yeah. Was that as shocking to you as it was when I heard it in the film? Like that moment, what did you, how did you feel about it when it, when you learned that? 
Yeah, well, I mean, just uh, doing the interviews with people, it was it was a catharsis. I mean, it was, you know, we kind of structured the interview that we talked about, the excitement of the times. And they were like hour-long, at least, interviews for the most part. And then, then we get into the AIDS story at the end, and uh, and inevitably, you know, the people would break down. I mean, it was it's it's something that never goes away. I lived through that era. Lived through that era. We lived through seeing you know everybody just dropping. You know, I think some of us yeah. covered it up with with drugs because it was so it was a horror yeah. and. Um, and I think the the movie is is pretty powerful because of that because you you feel the excitement and the joy and then you feel the pain. I mean, it kind of the structure of it wrote itself, you know, just of that time. I think the physical representations are important. I looked at that photo and I thought it's like going to see the quilt. I can't see the quilt anymore because they're all dead, you know. And I knew them all. And I mean, there I have so many quilts in that quilt. Yeah. And of course. The point now is they can never exhibit it in one place. It's too big. I mean, it fills a football field, one part of it. So yeah. it, it, they portion it off to show it. But it's that kind of thing. When you when you see it in front of you, you suddenly it, it hits you, even if you are not at all related to it, of what a tremendous loss this was. Uh, what just, this period was like with every day was another, you know, I mean, it was the kind of things that people my age are going through now through natural causes. But this 40 years ago, we were going through this. Yeah. It's unnatural causes. What it did was it united our, our community uh, on a common, with a common cause because mm-hmm. the government wasn't doing yeah. anything about it. And, and that is the reason why, you know, we have gay marriage today. Is because of AIDS. So it's always the silver lining, and you know what's going on now. It's like our rights are going to be taken away. It seems by this Supreme Court, uh, you know, they're hanging on by a thread, and that's why it's really important for uh, the people who were there, and even more so for the younger generation to understand, you know, that these rights aren't a given. That you know they take them for granted, perhaps, uh, to understand what what generations before them actually sacrificed and did to get that. Yeah. I have a couple more questions, but I want to remind folks before we jump in that your movie's screening Tuesday, July 18th at 7 p.m. at OutFest. You can learn about it at outfest.org. And I know there's a Facebook page also for your for your movie, and people should keep an eye out for it. Is it playing in North Carolina? Did I read that? Yes, it is. All right. Yeah. Rock on. Be in August. Yep. Yeah, I, awesome. I love that festival too. All right, uh, it's, our screening is sold out, but there there is a standby line, and most people are able to get in. They hold back out past uh, a bunch of them, so give it a shot. I think you can get it. All right, I have two more questions: one silly, one serious. What's a song that always makes you think of Studio One? Well, Last Dance always makes you think of Studio One because it's still around. They play at the end of every at every disco, gay, straight, you know, whatever. So. Um, uh, and it's it, uh, it emblematic of so much of like yeah. at the, when Paul wrote it, it was uh, ironic because he he eventually died of AIDS. But it was about this is it. This is the last chance. Go for Oof. it. That was and, supposed to be uh, the silly question. So always, you know, I always think of that. Yeah. Mark Mark's choice is much more upbeat than that. <laughs> well, I mean, don't leave me this way. Is of yeah. course 
that's another one one that can be read into that um yeah and also sylvester's uh you make me feel mighty right mighty real um and by the way sylvester and charles nelson riley also hosted that first dates fundraiser with joan what a trio what a trio of icons um last question for you mark what's a moment from making this movie that you'll always remember uh, but, you know, I was there in, in, uh, in 84. So I have these memories of going to that place that burned into my memory. Um, and when I started researching, I hadn't, you know, I had no idea what had happened before. And I think, uh, wow, there's so much. I, I can't really pinpoint it down to one thing, but, uh, the fact that Studio 54 was inspired by Studio One, uh, Steve Rubell and Halston were friends of Scott Forbes and they visited it. And so many people, like I, thought uh, that it was just a cheap ripoff of Studio 54. And I realized that, no, I had no idea that that place existed for 20 years until I started making it. Well, awesome. Well, it was really fun to talk to you guys. The movie brought back a lot of memories. It really moved me and it was entertaining and it, it was just wonderful. So I hope a lot of people go and see it. Well, thank you so much. All right. Bye. Thanks again to Mark Saltarelli and Bruce Valanche from Studio One Forever. Go see their movie or if you're in L.A., it's showing at Outfest on Tuesday, July 18th. It's also coming to North Carolina and you can follow it on its own Facebook page and keep up with all its um, appearances and screenings and stuff. All right. So this happened. I have been seeing a ton of theater lately. I'm really into theater. Um, Just last week, I saw the Tina Turner musical, Tina. And, um, you know, jukebox musicals where they try to take somebody's catalog and make a musical out of it, you know, they always have like, you know, they're they're a little, they're kind of, you know, they're like, we got to do this song about Thunderdome, but why on earth would she sing Thunder? Why is she going to sing the word Thunderdome? Oh, I don't know, but we can't take it out. It's Thunderdome. So they figure it out. But anyway, I was just knocked out by the energy coming off the stage from that cast. You really felt like we were all agents that could have given them all their big break. They were just going for it um everybody especially the actor who played tina whose name i don't have in front of me at the moment and also there are two tinas they alternate which i get because it's an exhausting show but um it really just made me think about the unlikeliness of tina turner's 80s comeback like how that happened and how huge that was and how well deserved it was but also just how unlikely uh for her at that time to have met the the manager i roger i forget his last name but he sort of like gave her these songs and took her to England and they figured it out and it was just you know magical and uh, now she's simply the best so that was really cool I also saw this straight play called A Soldier's Play at the Amundsen a few weeks ago it was a movie in the 80s called A Soldier Story and I was curious to see it um, because I have a bit of history with the material when I was in college in the 80s, right when the movie came out, I was in an oral interpretation class and we were all given an assignment to interpret, to do a speech or a cutting, like a drama cutting or something like that, um, by an author who was not in our ethnic group. That was the assignment. So I had just seen the movie and I thought, oh, this is an interesting piece. And also I was, it was at the time I was sort of discovering grown-up movies for myself and starting to think of myself as like, a film person and so that resonated with me and I, I picked something from that and I can't imagine it was very long I don't remember what exactly it was the material but I did it in the class 
And at the end of the class, there were two African-American students in the class who were so upset that I had done this. And the whole class stayed there and talked, talked about it for an hour afterwards. And I can still remember them sitting right there and the looks on their faces and the way that it felt. Um, and I'm not saying this as like, oh, I shouldn't have... Like, I didn't know. Like, it was just an, it was just an eye-opening experience. And I remember... I could still feel what it felt like physically to have done something that clearly, clearly hurt somebody um, very badly and to be so clueless. And so like, what it's in the, it's in the theaters. I, you know, like, like I didn't get it. And I, and I think it's because the, the play has to do with the way some black people feel about other black people. Like it was very, uh, that, that was sort of the theme of it. Um, but I was drawn to it for some reason. And I, I guess I knew I could get the play from Samuel French. That's always helpful. We didn't have the internet. And so as I was watching the play at the Amundsen, which was very good, um, I kept thinking, is some of this, are some of these lines going to jump out as like the part that I did? Cause I don't remember what part I did. Um, and am I going to like have this like visceral feeling of like, Oh, that's what I did. And that's what, um, was so upsetting. Um, but nothing really quite jumped out. There's a, a cranky old sergeant character who's the most hateful. And I think his lines would have gotten me the most, you know, that th- those would have been the most incendiary. But I can't imagine being drawn to that character. Like, he was not, I don't know. I don't know. I just, uh, I just remember very vividly how it felt to be sitting there in that class. And I was upset about it for, for weeks. Like, it was really... Um, eye-opening and uh i am not i i don't mean to be like oh that was the assignment and whatever no it was just more like a, a learning like an eye-opening like one of the things you go to college for i guess and i looking back it's interesting that 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 was the assignment i don't know if you could have that assignment today a teacher could do that maybe they could i don't know um but i did learn something but maybe not um what they were the the assignment um was meant to illustrate but I do remember all of us in the class sitting there for like an hour it was like uh, it was like a bomb had gone off or something and I had lit it uh, unwittingly wow so that was a soldier's um, play very good and I think it's still touring the country and the actor I forget his last name Norm why can't I remember his name he's a Broadway guy he's a friend of my friend Matt's and we got to meet him backstage afterwards and he could not have been nicer so nice I love that guy I love that guy so much that I only know his first name uh, it'll come to you You're, somebody's driving screaming the last name in the car that is if you've followed on this long um, one other play that I saw Into the Woods is now at the Amundsen the touring production and I love that it's really silly like with the comedy they really go for the silly and yet when it gets emotional it really packs that punch that you want and just delightful a wonderful wonderful production and the way they do the giant and the cow and it's just it's just clever and not super not huge sets it was is done more with with ideas and cleverness and um cool execution and yeah definitely a delight and worth seeing and i read somebody posting online about it and they were sort of saying the older you get the more sondheim resonates and i think that's true i think that's true so um 
All right, that's enough for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I appreciate it. And we're going to have some more Outfesty episodes coming up, different films, different filmmakers that I've been lucky enough to see in advance. So I want to give a shout out to AJ Sousa for mixing the episode. My theme music is by Mark Daniels for Placement Music. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye. Bye.